doing a lot of reading, you know, like online about like, like, like just like evolution and like and natural selection and how like there's this thing, right? It is called the apex predator, right? And basically what this is, is the strongest animal in the ecosystem, right? And, and, and as human beings, we are, we're considered the apex predator, but only because like, like smaller animals can't feed on us because of weapons and stuff, right? The lion does not feel guilty when it kills a gazelle, right? You do not feel guilty when you squash a fly. And I think that means something. I just think that really means something. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God. You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome to the podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here a minute ago, but he said he needed to go look up what Jung said about glow sticks. And I got nothing. Don't know what that one means, but while he's gone, in the meantime, allow me to welcome you back once more to our year-long Umbrella series. We are just trekking along in this series called, affectionately, 2020-2020, where we examine 20 films of the last 20 years in the year 2020. To know more about the intention behind this, go check out our precap episode from the end of January which itself feels like ages ago. Today, we're looking at the year 2012, but I'm getting ahead of myself, which I am often prone to do because here at the fear of God, we explore. We don't explain except for right now. When I explain that you can listen to the fear of God at your nearest podcast platform, you can watch the fear of God on YouTube and you can browse the fear of God on the web at the fear of where you'll find episode archives and merchandise, including t-shirts, campaign buttons, pillows, magnets, masks. Read! Read! Hey, buddy! Well, oh, oh, oh! Listeners who can't no, see what's happening right now exactly. and don't go watch us on YouTube won't know that you were just telekinetically moving Rafiki with your mind. And I know that. Riri, we've got a we've got a lot to get to today. Absolutely. But first, it's business. <laughs> it's business time. You know what I'm done with socks. That's not my business. That's what I call business socks. Ew. Ew. Riri, I don't know if you've seen lately. But over on the Fear of God Instagram, 
there's a brand new feature. Yeah. Thanks to the one and only Vera Gowdy called the Gory Gourmet. I have mm. a word. That's a Gory Gourmet. I have seen that. Yes, listeners, if you have not been to the Fear of God Instagram lately, we mentioned this last week. We are way past due on this. She's done about three or four, four or five entries on this. You may have missed foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy's lavish displays of not just culinary mastery, but deafness. Deafness? Deft deafness. Nest. <laughs> I think you said I've three seen, yeah, versions. It's a deaf nest, <laughs> bird. I like that nest. <laughs> that's a that's a real deaf nest. Yeah. <laughs> Social media usage. That's Vera. <laughs> She's been toiling to create ghostly goodness from the kitchen in a story and highlight series called Yes Gory Gourmet, featuring dishes so far inspired by Evil Dead and Ghostbusters, as well as a skeletal bread bowl and charcuterie board. All right. It is an amazing contribution. Contribution. <laughs> it is an amazing contribution to the growing fog footprint, and we'd love to see some nailed it versions <laughs> of you listeners' attempts at recreating some of the dishes take it away Reed, because clearly i cannot speak wow um no so uh speaking of you know it, whether you share your nailed it versions of gory gourmet or not um we want to draw your attention that this is the final week of what we have recently dubbed sharing is caring if you've listened to the show for any length of time uh but particularly for the last year or two um you've probably encountered something that hopefully if you keep coming back to it has either made you laugh or made you think or made you maybe get a little bit emotional uh in any degree whether that be anger or tears or inspiration or whatever but we want to hear about it so what we want you to do is we want you to share the show or that specific element of the show that uh, arrested your imagination we want you to share that to your social media platform of choice be that instagram twitter facebook whatever and uh you want you're gonna want to tag us in it and you're gonna want to do that this week because next week we are going to take all of the people who have done it so far and all the people who do it for because of this announcement and we are going to enter them into a contest to win a fear of god t-shirt so the contest ends this week in addition to sharing and tagging us on facebook which really that part of it will never end just you know the contest portion of it is what's going to end um we also want you to email us um email us about something that's happened in 2020 for you uh as we've referenced before we've had some really lovely and wonderful exchanges with some listeners with thoughtful and and just dialogue opening conversations and we would love to have that with you so email us fear of god podcast at gmail.com if you want to enter yourself into the contest then tag the show, uh, post the show, post an episode, post uh, something about the show to social media and tag us in it. You will automatically be entered into that contest. We will announce the winners next week, the winner of the contest next week. What you, what else you got for us, Nathan? <laughs> I got me typing while you talking. Oh, I didn't expect Nathan to read the end so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, keep talking. <laughs> Wait a minute. Stop. Um, stop. Yes. Last bit of business is, uh, as we've been announcing for some time and getting some very impressive and lovely and fun responses to, Indeed. is the audience. What you watching? What you reading? What you listening to? So, 
Um, just last week, we featured a very special version. <laughs> um, thanks to Asia and J. Mark Schwarzentruber, them the pioneers of this whole enterprise. Uh, so you've heard some of these so far. Go back and listen. If you, at this point, we're actually getting a little distant from the last time Reed and I did this. If you need some help knowing what we're talking about, email us. That can be your email. Hey, guys, what is that you're talking about? We'll point you that direction. Uh, it's a little jingle we did for a solid like two years. <laughs> and now we're inviting listeners to record their own version. Send it in. We're going to play it on the show. It's you. It's your spouse. It's your pet. It's your sibling. It's your auntie. It's your neighbor. It's your whatever. Socially distance. You know, come on. Hold out your phone. <laughs> uh, uh, do your your voice memo recorder. Send it to fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We should have just done FogPod at Gmail. That's pretty good. And we might just use it on the show and credit you and reread. That is it for business time. Business. That's all I got. Ew. <laughs> That's awesome. Riri. Okay. Riri. Yes. So listen up. Riri. Masks have been worn. Voter suppression has been resisted. And the votes have been counted. They have. And it is time to go back. To 2020 2020 and this time for the top 10 listener voted horror films of 2012 with the one and only lackey the listicle my occasionally listless list making lackey hi everybody all right so yes we are counting down your favorite horror films from every year in the 2000s beginning with the year 2000 all the way up through if we stay on schedule which we certainly plan to all the way up through uh to 2020 which will be a very very interesting year um so uh yeah your votes have been counted are you ready uh nathan to just chime Uh, down the the list of top 10 horror 20 2012 yeah, no that was see. last week is your next yeah <laughs> um Zing. do you want let's okay, do it i'm gonna take evens this time okay. all right so evens how, how very odd of you <laughs> number 10 is a film directed by richard shankman and starring friend of the show bill oberst jr does also, he play the lead uh he does play the lead he plays abraham really? lincoln yeah mm-hmm. yep abraham abraham well, lincoln fun. versus zombies and i will say I like it's it's interesting for me to imagine what the these lists would be if not for what we know about our listeners. Like I do wonder if Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies cuz Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which was a major studio film, was also one of the nominees, but it is Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies that made the list. And I wonder if Bill's presence uh, among our, you know, sort of fog community sort of boosted this up a little bit. Hmm. He's great. In this film, the film itself is marginal, but he's he's actually a really, really uh, delivers a great performance. He's actually a really great Lincoln. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies, directed by Richard Shankman uh, and starring our good friend Bill Oberst Jr. is your number 10 favorite horror film of 2012. Number nine is Resident Evil Retribution. Um, I played Resident Evil. I have this fond memory when I was in high school. Yeah. Uh, of having like, it was like a birthday hang with some buddies. It was like a sleepover thing. Hmm. And we set up uh, an SNES, no, the 64, the Nintendo 64 oh. in one room. We had yeah. the 64 set up with, I'm remembering Mario World, but also probably GoldenEye at that time. And then a oh, PS1 with Resident Evil, the very first Resident Evil. It's and 
when those dogs jump out of that window, I, that's poop club got <laughs> happened right there. Right. 20, right. 20 plus years ago, poop club started. <laughs> yeah. Resident <laughs> Evil Retribution. I don't know if I've seen any of these, but it is directed not to be confused with Paul Thomas, but instead Paul W.S. Anderson. Mm-hmm. And this is the fifth and penultimate installment in the franchise. Anderson had also launched the film series, just in case that little factoid. Yeah, he directed helpful. the first one and then bowed out until he directed the fourth through the sixth entry. This is the fifth. And uh, I have seen, so I've definitely seen the first one. And I'm co- fairly confident that I have seen at least one or two of the sequels. Um, but I have a bad memory for them. They d- they just don't resonate with me in the way that I know they do, you know, uh, certain you other. You could say they listeners. kind of don't take up residence in your brain. They do not. No, they do not. So I honestly, I so, saw one of the ones with Mila Jovovich. Yeah, she's in all of them. Uh, yeah. So um, <laughs> that was just a lucky guess. Ah, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so so I, you know, n- remembering that Whoa. I've seen the first one. Well, no, 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 no. Um, remembering that I have seen the first one, but not recalling. If I have seen this one or not, because with but apologies, I can't. Be- oh, I definitely played the games. Um, and in fact, there was a um, a, a version. Our uh, my wife's uh, cousin, her husband has a VR headset, uh-huh. and I don't know if it was specifically a Resident Evil VR version, but he made me play that thing for a few uh-uh. minutes. That, that was right. It was awful. It was awful. I mean, like first of all, I get nauseous because it's VR, and I get I get motion sickness. Secondly, it was scary. So, yeah. So, anyway. All right. But, uh, Number eight. Yeah, there's that. Number eight is a film. So, this is this is going to need some apologies on my part. It's a oh. film that I have been wanting to get to. This has actually been on my radar for a po- really long time. Are you going to apologize for not having seen a film? Yeah, I Reed, am. Come on, I man. Like, so, you get, you're so giving towards the horror <laughs> genre. Occasionally, it's okay for one to slip one? through the cracks. Right, right. right it's called right, grabbers, right, right. you know? Like, that. Yes. Kind of, I didn't like, grab it. You, you know? did, or it didn't grab you. You know, it did. Yeah, something grab you but about. The premise is interesting. It's a it's a horror comedy uh, about people who have to fight these monsters, and it's something related are the to monsters like called the, grabbers. Are the people grabbing well, the monsters? Well, I'd say that's the you part I don't know because I haven't seen it. Why don't you it? apologize no, for, to us? I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's directed by <laughs> it's directed by John Wright, and uh, yeah, it's a film I've been meaning to get to, but I just I just haven't yet, so I uh, can't say much about it. But it's been on my radar as one of those highly regarded horror comedies that is just uh, on oh, my shelf that I need to make it. So it's got a funny name, so it kind of makes sense, right? Uh, number seven, directed by Craig Zobel who directed The Hunt of this past yes. year. Yes, he did. Uh, this film put our girl Anne on the map, and it is called Compliance, and it is rough. It is. I have, I have seen Compliance. Yeah, Compliance is very challenging. It's a very well-made film. I don't even remember what, at the time, would have prompted me to see it, because it, you know that would have been my first experience with Anne Dowd. But it's terrible. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a great movie. Oh, it's, terrible. Yeah, no, it's it's subject matter is terrible. The 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 premise is there's a uh, a woman who works at this like restaurant, and uh, it's more like a like a takeout place, like a fast food restaurant. And um, a prank caller calls the restaurant 
pretending to be like a leading authority, like a police officer or something like that. And I won't go into so many of the details, but basically through the course of him calling, he convinces the employees in this restaurant. Yeah, the the, yeah, specifically, I think she is the shift manager and Dowd can but convinces more than just her convinces people to do some pretty awful things to one of the employees there under the guise of being an authority figure. But it's, what's even most, what's even more wretched is now I don't remember how deeply I looked into this because the movie's real off putting in its con- subject matter, but sure, right, it's right. rooted in some sort of real story. Oh, it is. Yes. It's, yeah. it's, it's, so it is not based on a true story in terms of like, yay, this happened here and these are the general uh, goings on, but it was fundamentally kind of inspired by a very similar event, an event that was widely publicized at the time uh, for its just sort of wildness, like we can't believe that this has happened. Um, It's a film that is, I mean, it sticks with you, and yes, it is powerfully made, and the the reason it's regarded as putting, because Ann Dowd has been acting off and on for a very long time, but... She, even in interviews and stuff, regards her role in compliance as, like, that's when people noticed her and began to give her more high-profile roles, and now she is in the position that she's in, and it also also started with this. And in in the event people are listening to this list, like, uh, as the name of the film implies, it's effectively, the theme of it is abuse of power. Yes. And... And it's it's the frog in the pot kind of scenario, and oh. just the, the longer the movie's going, the more you're you're discomforted. There's, it's it's it is not graphically sexually explicit, but the con- the subject matter is of a strong sexual yes. nature, and it's really troubling. Yeah. Um. What's number six, Reed? Number six is a film that I just recently saw. I think like within a little over a year ago. Um, directed by David Guy Levy. It's a film called Would You Rather, uh, which is a uh, like a party game that people play where you just make up a scenario. Would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And you can either go with two things that are generally very appealing and exciting, and which one would you rather do between the two? Or, uh, as in the case of this horror film, uh, two very dreadful things, and which would you rather endure? Um, so the film is rooted in, you know, a group of people are gathered together by some rich psychopath, and they play a game of would you rather, with the stakes becoming increasingly more dreadful and awful uh, for the chance of surviving that night and winning a cash prize uh, of doing so. It stars uh, Brittany Snow, um, and uh, it is... Um, Oh, gosh. And what is his name? Jeffrey Coombs from Reanimator, the guy who actually played the lead in Reanimator. Mm. Um, but at any rate, it is, it is, it is an effective little film. But as you can imagine from the premise, pretty graphic and dreadful. <laughs> so uh, that's Would You Rather by David Guy Levy. I I'm assuming you haven't seen it. Would not rather. <laughs> uh, no, I, I haven't. Um, at number five on the list, directed by James Watkins and starring Harry Potter himself, it is. You're in the woman in black, Harry. Um, <laughs> the, the woman in black, which <laughs> I remember seeing trailers for, but did not see. So the only thing that I would say about the film, it's really effective production. 
but it's very slow paced. I think what puts a lot of people off on it is it is they just fall um, asleep before it gets scary. <laughs> it's almost almost glacial in its pace. It's all about atmosphere, and to that end, is pretty effective. But um, but uh, yeah, I need to revisit it because I do remember I was I was actually struggling to stay awake uh, through it. I remember like kind of liking what they were going for, but not really uh, not really uh, being very captivated by it. But okay, so uh, number four. Is a film that I briefly wrench, uh, mentioned and referenced last week. Um, is VHS directed by eight different directors? I did not list them all. Um, I'm going to give particular attention to Ty West, Joe Swanberg, and Adam Wingard, who were all mentioned in last week's film. Adam Wingard, the director of Your Next, uh, Joe Swanberg, and Ty West, both actors in Your Next. And so uh, VHS is an anthology film where some characters stumble upon some old VHSs. They begin to watch them, and horrific things are uh, captured on them. So, uh, yeah, it's your does, it's kind of does, your standard. Does the... Uh, framing device. D- does the content of what they watch somehow impact the framing? A bit, yeah. That that it's the framing device itself is one of the stories that oh. is, yeah, that that oh. is kind of playing out along the way. Interesting. Um, yeah, and I mean. Yeah, so it's had like three or four sequels. I think uh, no, I think it's only had two sequels. But um, there is a debate kind of on the interwebs of whether the VHS or VHS two is the stronger of the two films. I am in the uh, probably in the VHS camp as stronger, though there is one particular installment in VHS two that is pretty arresting and very effective. Are they but, just called VHS VHS two VHS three? The like third a, one is called VHS Viral. And feels uh, like a missed opportunity. They should have done like Be Kind Rewind or something like that. <laughs> you know. Beta. Uh, number three, um, fair warning, spoiler in the title here, directed by Don Coscarelli, it is John Dies at the End. And I'm just kind of assuming it's a spoiler because I've not seen the film. Right. But what um, if there, what if I, have you seen it? I haven't actually. What no, if, this what if wouldn't it be funny if it was like, like every character in the movie is named John. And like, that is the mystery. Like, well, wait a minute. Which John? <laughs> yeah. That's John. funny. John dies at the end. Right. But which one? So I do think like so. John Goodman, John C. Riley, <laughs> you know, all John I Candy. know, they're all, they're all there. All of them. All of them. John Doe. John. Uh, yeah. No. John Cougar Mellencamp. So um, <laughs> there you go. Now you're on the right track. So um, John so, Boy and Billy. What <laughs> John Boy. So um, Johnny Tremaine. <laughs> Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> it's like it's, it's just this alternate multi multiverse movie about one of the Johns oh who does the end. <laughs> John Johnny come lately. So um, so so um. From what I so I have not seen this film, nor have I looked deeply into the plot of the film. So Don Coscarelli, of course, you don't have to know. No, no, he's received a lot of love on the show before because Bubba Hotep was episode forty-two, Phantasm was episode one fifty-two. But um, it's it from what I know, it's a horror comedy with some sci-fi thrown in there, and I do believe it's based on a novel, and I do believe that, as one might assume. The title is some version of a red herring, but I don't know because I haven't looked enough into the into the story to know what degree or how it plays out into hmm. everything. But presumably the title has some version of clever red herringness to it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so those who have seen it 
clearly enjoyed it because they voted it at number three. Um, number two, number two, uh, I wasn't going to do it. I know, I know. I you've kind of, you've kind of given I, up on it. Yeah, so, we retired uh, that one. We did. Just, we did. You just resuscitated it. So here it is. It's back. The zombie gag. So um, <laughs> coming so, up on two hundred episodes. So you gotta gotta hit do all the greatest hits. <laughs> oh, so uh, directed by Josh Trank. It is the featured subject of our of our episode today. It is Chronicle. So we will be sharing all of our thoughts with you about Chronicle in just a few moments. Um, and then why don't you tell us what yeah. number one is for two thousand twelve? Speaking of going through all the greatest hits of. The Fear of God in honor of the uh, the looming episode 200. Number one on the top 10 horror of 2012 is, in fact, uh, Batman vs. Superman by uh, Zack Snyder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Imagine. imagine. So much had to happen to make that work the way it just did. Imagine, if you will, <laughs> listeners hearing us for the first time being like, yeah. really? I, don't, really? Huh? I don't understand. What? I don't get it. Nathan, um, the, like new listeners, like, Nathan's so random. <laughs> it's like, I am a bit. all these Johnnies but, yeah. in there, and then, I, then just like picks Dear a John, um, No, number one, <laughs> number one is directed by uh, Fog favorite Scott Derrickson, uh, featured on episode six. Single it is digits, man. Featuring Bagul himself, the Ethan Hawk vehicle, Sinister. Mm-hmm. That's probably one of our. What episode was Cloverfield Lane? Four? That was five. Yeah, five. That was five. Mm-hmm. Both of those have some lasting impact on our. Yeah, they still fog, fog vernacular. Absolutely, they still. You know, those early. It's it's funny because I feel like the first ten episodes get referenced and talked about a lot and set kind of a lot of standards. And then I feel like there's it, it's hard for me to discern past that point through the rest of the catalog, like where certain things came from, uh, certain things that have just become part of our general right. vernacular. So, but um, like Batman versus Superman. So, so in this list, uh, while you are pulling up, if you will be so kind to do so, uh, the top five box office hits which i'm sure will be some installments of franchise or whatever from 2012 (laughs) um the uh in in sort of featuring this list i don't know listeners might disagree with me i think this is a really weak year for horror like there's a lot of things i mean like compliance is a weak compliance is a strong film i'm always gonna seize the opportunity to show some love to bill obers jr for his inclusion uh his films being his film being included on the list but with the glaring exception of Sinister, which was in the voting the runaway favorite, like it was, you know, so many votes came in where all they voted for was Sinister. Um, and so it was the runaway favorite, but it does feel like it was a relatively kind of weak year, uh, hmm. just in general. There's not a lot of films on here. Now, granted, I haven't seen Grabbers, which I think is pretty highly regarded. And I haven't seen John dies at the end, which made number three. But um, but I think there's not a lot on here that that get referenced a lot or talked about a lot um, in any sort of like iconic uh, movement within the horror community. So it's interesting. This, Just this is going to be a really random question. Yeah. Did Lost start in oh four? Yeah, Lost started in oh four. Yeah. The only reason I ask that is I wonder if at all. Again, I may be totally mixing 
things that aren't meant to be here. I wonder if the writer strike, because the writer strike would have been season five or six of Lost, which would have meant 2010 or 11. Like, I just wonder if the long tail of the writer strike had an impact on the level of quality in 2012. It's not. Uh, it's not an absurd observation. I think the the. Yeah, I would need to do some digging into actually like to. it's just fun. Well, b- pull up, b- pull up the uh, box office winners and see if that well, gives us any indication as to what might be there. N- well, I don't think that's exactly going to be the case, if only because probably most of these were in high level mm. production for a long time before that makes release. Sense. Because let's see, anything in six through ten, uh, your second favorite film of that era. Didn't squeak into the top five, but number six is Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part Two. Um, this is Electric Boogaloo. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> number Twilight five, Saga, Breaking Dawn Part Two, Breaking Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Part Two. Electric number five <laughs> is Ice Age Continental Drift. There is, <laughs> there is not quite a more signature, like franchise of kids movies that i have not given to you know what's about than ice age (laughs) like i just which isn't even me disparaging them i think i saw one of them i just don't Mm. care you know yeah Uh, yeah yeah yeah. um it's that way for me with ice age which i have not seen a single installment of and madagascar which i have only seen like afro circus oh no circus Chris Rock plays the cheetah or the tiger or whatever. And I it is. remember that from the trailers. And then that's he, the only thing I know about it. Well, we just—I can't remember seeing a Madagascar movie, but the song oh. Afro Circus played routinely in our house for a little while oh. during that era. Oh, okay. I don't really know why, other than the Chris <laughs> Rock fandom. Uh, number four is just signal of sad. Here is The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey. I'm not surprised. It's it's that high on box office because there there was sure. a lot of well. And the first hum- film is fair, That's yeah. Fair. And I like the smog stuff in the second one, but that's about it. Hmm. I do. I mean, I like I the lo- design. Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that wasn't me critiquing the smog stuff. I'm just remembering just how little, <laughs> how bad those subsequent two films are. Like, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. And the smog stuff. What's what so bothers me in hindsight about that was I remember going to see that second film, you know, and you're in the smog lair for what an hour and a half, who knows? And then it just ends with him flying off. And I was like, Oh my God, I cannot believe I just sat through all of this. <laughs> that was so boring. <laughs> no, but yeah, visually and it's right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Dr. S- Dr. Strange is the dragon. Uh, <laughs> but unexpected journey. The first one, I do think, Hmm. How do I say this? With words. These three, <laughs> and as opposed to grunts, <laughs> um, which is my usual language of choice. Um, Tap it out in Morse on the microphone. Right, right. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I was going to say these three films are almost worth their existence for the riddles in the dark or secrets in the dark mm, sequence mm, riddles, from riddles Unexpected Journey. Dark, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I actually don't know that I believe that. Ah, um, uh, yeah. That yeah. scene is fantastic. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think I might trade all three movies and just not sully the Enterprise instead yeah. of getting that one yeah. good scene. 
So, um, so that is a yeah. great scene. Before we move on, uh, the second installment also had nothing to do with the film, but the second installment also gave us one of my favorite Ed Sheeran songs, uh, I oh, See Fire, which so is... No, it is, but okay. uh, but uh, that song uh, is is a favorite song of mine, and so I have right. the second film to thank for that. But that's it. <laughs> You're like <laughs> of the ten years it took to make this film, and the massive amount of manpower and resources. The things I'll say are positive: is a song off the soundtrack of the second film, <laughs> and a five minute scene from the first. This nine hours worth of film time. <laughs> these are Closer the takeaways. No, yeah, sure, a, whatever. We're just kind of splitting hairs at that point. <laughs> like, was it nine hours or ten hours? Split Does one hobbits. make it any better? Um, number three on the list, which I saw multiple times in the theater. Oh, is. <sighs> Oh, boy. I was wondering what would break first, your spirit or your box office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. The fire rises. <laughs> we need to find a way for Bane to have a conversation with Swedish Chef. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> I I am Cooking's mm, reckoning. Mm, <laughs> so, wow. Speak oh. of the devil. I need <laughs> um, you know what? It has wow. its problems and the edit is kind of one of them, but I I love this movie. Uh it oh, is eminent, yeah. it is eminently watchable. Um I think I saw it at least three, maybe five times in the theater. Um, I drove to Raleigh, North Carolina, because they have a bona fide IMAX. And oh, I was actually yeah, yeah, worried. Yeah. Shout out, good buddy Charlie Baber. Um, uh, met up with him, lived in Raleigh at the time, met up with him. We went to see Dark Knight Rises. It was like my fourth viewing. And I was actually worried. I was like, this is a lot of work for a movie I've seen four times in the theater already. Right. But I wanted to see it legit style on, mm. you know, as, as the Nolan intended, mm-hmm. uh, on full IMAX, not fakey IMAX. Sure. And I remember even still being breathtaking by that experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the thing is, is the, the way you said it is pretty perfect. Like it, it has its problems. It has its problems narratively and in the edit. People forgive the fact that the Dark Knight does too. At least in some of its, you know, some of its narrative hooks, there are yeah. there are gaps that it just sort of leaps over that don't sure. hold up logically. But the experience of the Dark Knight is so, you know, I propulsively arresting that it's you forgive all of it because it's like, oh my god. And you know, we love talking about Batman. <laughs> oh, we do, we do. Light it up. <laughs> so I love Reed. I love that movie. That well, showdown. That that the the I mean I was actually going to refer to the one on the town hall city hall steps, but then yes, I'll, immediately good. my brain went to the fight in the catacombs. That's it's no absolutely yeah unbelievable yeah well and and that one sequence I mean if I were to make you know moments in the Nolan trilogy uh, you know in the top five might be his ascent out of the that's amazing out of the the pit I love you know, that score the score that's, that's happening in that sequence. Well, the, and I can remember sitting there in the theater and the feeling I got, because you know, at that point, like he's going to make it I'm out. I'm not scared. Yeah. You know, this, this film, right. 
this film is not going to end with Bruce Wayne like plummeting from the pit into doom. So when they, you know, when they b- make that big reveal and it's like, yeah, I did it without a rope and you know, okay, he's climbing up without the rope. It's about to happen. The music is starting to swell. Mm. It's really, it's really impactful. And then all of the bats come flying mm. out. I know mm. it's a bit cheesy and manipulative, but no. dude, they, they had me. Like yeah. I was, I was in, I was all in I mean, on this moment. Manipulation is okay when we're, when we're fully cognizant of it and I'm on board, you know? Yeah, sure. Not like compliance style. But yeah, I love, <laughs> love, love, love The Dark Knight Rises. No, um, yeah. Uh, number two on the list is Skyfall, the Bond film, which Have you I enjoyed. seen it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I've seen it. I, here's what's really is funny. This, is this the one that ends with him out of the, out of the, there's a comp, the, the cabin or the, yeah. or the snowy, yeah. Snowy and it's like thing. very remote, but I remember being very galvanized by the visual aesthetic of it. Like it when when the catacomb is or when the little compound sort of rural housing is set ablaze mm-hmm. and the, the lighting structure of it is basically all of the light in the frame is coming from the fires that are seen. There's no mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. everything's in silhouette. There's some really arresting imagery in it. Um Skyfall has the unique distinction among Bond films in that when James Bond is brought up, even though I've seen many of the Sean Connery films and I've seen a couple of the others here and there, not, you know, extensively because I'm not a very big fan of it, but Skyfall is always where my mind goes. I think that's the one that really just stayed with me in terms of it is, it's a very powerful experience. Yes, Bardem is the villain. That scene is pretty powerful. Oh, it really is. It really is. I don't remember much beyond those two things, though. Uh, but no, I yes, I really, I highly, highly enjoyed Skyfall. You know, was great. I was begrudging. This is actually a decent list. I was begrudging last week's just plethora of franchises, which this one is not bereft of. But I at least like a handful of these franchises. Number one, read with one and a half billion dollars. Billion. Do you have a guess? I don't have a guess. It is, ladies and gentlemen. We have a Hulk. Really? The, Aven- the oh, Avengers. It's the Avengers. Yeah. That's my yeah, secret, yeah, yeah. Tony. I'm always angry. I'm always angry. <laughs> is that what you always are? Is it? It is. I'm gonna tell this really funny. I'm gonna tell it. I'm gonna tell it. I'm gonna are, tell this are, really are, funny story. I am. <laughs> yep. Because it's it is funny and it wasn't meant as racy as it in, as it ended up. Uh sure. you know, mine and Reed's uh GIF game, GIF game, whatever. Reed Reed taught me a lot of about the meme game a couple years ago when he just started, I was used to communicating like a human with words and all of a sudden just, you know, slightly yeah, I realized animated. I could get a thousand of them in one. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Slightly, <laughs> slightly animated images would pop up in my phone. I'm like, huh, Reed, Reed clearly knows what he's doing with this. And Reed and I are in a little thread of some buddies and some pod bro pals and some, and we're all, you know, kind of nerdy genre and, and comic booky fans. And I don't even remember the context, but I was going hunting for the I'm always angry, uh, Ruffalo transforming into the Hulk. Right. GIF, right. GIF. And I found the image I wanted. And at the bottom, I could see I've got, I'm 40 and I've had bad vision <laughs> since I was four. Um, I could see what resembled the words I'm always angry. So I was like, oh, yep, copy, throw it into the thread. It <laughs> hits the thread. And of course, you know, in your phone, the tiny image becomes the bigger image once it's actually in the message thread. And what I, in fact, had posted into the thread, fortunately, of friends, <laughs> was 
the screen grab of the Avengers film of Mark Ruffalo turning into the Hulk, but instead at the bottom, it did not say I'm always angry. It said I'm always horny. And it was just, <laughs> it was just one of these just amazing moments of just like, you can't, couldn't have planned that one. So yeah, it's become the running joke. Cause I'm oh always horny. Oh my gosh. That, um, it's so yes. funny. But number Hearing one, you tell it yeah. delighted me yeah. so much. Because it, it literally was me just trying to say the I'm always angry sort of thing. That I was probably so pissed at something political and I ended up saying I'm always horny. <laughs> I was like, that is not the message I was trying to send. <laughs> I do love Mark Ruffalo, this. but, you know, it, I don't, not quite that much. Oh. Um, but the Avengers was number one with one and a half billion dollars in 2012. Reed, that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. What are That's we talking awesome. about today, my friend? So we are talking about number two on your favorite horror films of 2012. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you a bit of a break. Um, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lead with my experience in this film. Okay. Um, As in with this particular viewing, or just generally like both. Um, okay. So I saw this film very very excited to see it because if you watch the trailer, the trailer looks really arresting. And so this film is about these three uh, high school age friends, and they uh, encounter one somewhat random night. They encounter out in the woods and in this little cave under uh, a clearing, uh, they encounter this very bizarre object. It looks like a, a big sort of crystallized it structure. It reminded me of Metroid. Looked like Mother oh. Brain. Yeah. Like yeah. Something yeah, yeah. Samus would find. Sure. And so uh, they encounter this thing. And then the film itself, it should be noted, is stylistically, it's a found footage film. Mm. It doesn't stay... We'll get to this in a little bit more. It doesn't stay completely true to its roots and structure, particularly in the in the end. But uh, for the majority of the film, it is structured like a found footage film. And yet, uh, after encountering this object in the cave, our three protagonists um, then and, and two of them are cousins. And the third is just a friend that has encountered them in school. And uh, the three of them begin to develop powers. They begin to develop telekinetic powers. They also have the power of flight. But you can imagine, if you haven't seen this film, you can imagine how arresting the visual dynamic is to see a very sort of handheld, found footage type image with all of these rather profound little things happening in the background and in the foreground. Um, and so I was really excited to see it. And I watched it. And I went back to what I had rated it prior to this viewing, and I did not I had not cared for it. Hmm. I didn't like it. There was a couple of things that I can remember thinking about it that I didn't like. Was that the only time previous to this viewing that you'd seen it? Yes, it was. And so what I kept close to the chest this time is when Chronicle made the list, and we listeners, if you haven't picked up on by now, the way we're kind of doing this, I don't think we've deviated from this yet. Uh, maybe only once if we have. Um, is basically you give us your list and whatever we have not the highest ranking that we have not already covered is what we decide to cover. Um, so when Chronicle came in second, which it wasn't always for a long time, it was John dies at the end, which I hadn't seen. And I was like, oh, that could, that could be curious when Chronicle made it to second and made it in a very firm second. Like the winner was absolutely uh, sinister. <laughs> the second most seen film on the list clearly was Chronicle. And so I kept, you know, kind of close 
that I was not very excited. I was like, okay, all right, fine. This is, you know, this is what it is. But I remembered from some of our text exchanges that you had been a bit fond of it, at least in the the sure. periphery. So I didn't want to rain on your parade. I always like the experience Appreciate of maybe <laughs> I always like the experience of maybe I'll reassess a film when I get into it. And so watching it this time around, I don't know if it's something more on the wavelength, if it's something just more knowing what to expect or whatever, but I was really taken with it this time. Huh. I re- I, enjo- I enjoyed it a lot, significantly more than I enjoyed it in my first viewing. And I can identify a couple of things about it this time around that were out of the way for my first viewing of it. I think in the first viewing of it, I was expecting a bit more of a heroic story and less of a tragedy, mm. which I would mm-hmm. definitely consider this yeah. to be more of a tragic story. I think I was experienced. I think I was expecting more of a like a heroic thing. I remember. We'll get to this, but I remember being uh, pretty like perturbed that Steve gets taken out when he does and how he does. Um, I remember that was yes, played by Michael B. Jordan. I remember I was I was kind of frustrated by that in the first viewing. This viewing, I I knew what to expect, so it didn't it didn't bother me. Um, but yeah, there were, I think there were a lot of things that I paid attention to this time around that may come up in in theme or just in the course of conversation that really um, elevated my opinion of the film in contrast to my longstanding opinion from when I had first seen it. So I'm actually really grateful that we're getting the opportunity to talk about it because it, it forced me to re-engage with it. And, and now I have a much higher opinion of it than I did. Very cool. But you, you always or you know, from, from first viewing, is this your first second time seeing it? Uh, this is the only second time I've seen it. And, um, we want, we're not going to camp here. Um, but uh, after this most recent viewing, it oh, yeah, reoccurred yeah. to me. So if you keep up with Hollywood stuff at all, you know, just kind of industry, whatever you might know, um, that Max Landis, who did the screen play for this. And I think had a story about credit with Trank, um, from the from the stuff I've seen is a reprehensible human being. So I didn't mm. I'd forgotten his association with the film beforehand. So just you know I would say in general um, maybe do your best because I actually think pretty fondly of the film the final the final version of it. Um, you know I can kind of dissociate from that a little bit. So just know we know that uh, it kind of didn't ping until after the fact, but just know we're aware of that and. You know, yeah, it is what it is. I do. I I, I, I agree with you. We sh- we shouldn't camp out on here, but I, I have a couple of things that I want to say about that. So so first, just in general, just so listeners will know, you and I haven't really defined this. So if I say something completely off base, then we'll you know we can edit it out and we'll pretend it never happened. Um, but uh, but I think in general, I think it's important, particularly in the spirit of exploring and not explaining the level and degree of systemic abuse of power that has taken place in this industry is so rampant and so widespread many industries um, but yes in many industries but i'm you know we yeah, typically yeah. cover the you know film industry and so um it would be impossible to unilaterally avoid films that are associated with people uh that honestly should uh should not be given very much credibility uh because of how they have abused their power and uh and and certainly we should be sensitive to laudits that accompany those kinds of things i think nathan and i are have exhibited um a consistent spirit of of graciousness and understanding in certain categories but uh, you know appreciate you kind of 
calling the thing out to to get ahead of it in that yes we we recognize that not only in this is the screenwriter directly related to some really reprehensible accusations um but also i mean last week we referenced uh the scream franchise and and weinstein is irrevocably associated right, with the yeah. scream fran- you know yeah. like it's like there's always going to be and not maybe sure. not always but there's frequently going to be right, some right. sort of you know association well, connected and there produced the others as well yeah um, yeah he did yeah um, and I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Just one thing that I should note, just this is more individual and personal. Um, We covered An American Werewolf in London, which is directed Mm -hmm. by John Landis, Mm -hmm. which is Max Landis's uh, father. Um, There there has been some conclusions in my mind recently where I, as as legendary as like Landis is considered in the, and as much as I, I love American Werewolf in London as a film. Um, but I'm really sort of bothered by John Landis, uh, bothered by some of the things that I see. There is a series, a very short series that just got renewed for season two on Shudder called Cursed Films. Have you heard about that series? Maybe, have you, maybe have just I referenced you, it? But yeah. yeah. Um, it is a very brief, like four episode uh, series, four or five episode series, I think only four, where they go through um uh the uh, films that are rumored to have had like curses on them like bad things have happened to mm-hmm. production bad things have, they cover the omen they cover the exorcist um and one of the films featured on there in a very it's a really arresting 30 minutes of film footage they address twilight zone the movie and a sequence did landis in, do that the oh, sorry. twilight zone no that's okay twilight zone is an anthology film and they understandably uh, dig in on one particular sequence in Twilight Zone, the movie, where I'm not being too reductive to say it is arguable that criminal negligence on the set of that film caused the death of three actors, two of which were children. And it is uh, very, very haunting to sort of you know, sort of experience that. And, and what I want to do in this moment is, as you just said, I don't want to camp out on that, but I do think there is going to be related to Chronicle some things that are bouncing around in my head, maybe because of those connections, maybe because of the text of the film. We'll see how the conversation sure. plays out um, about ways in which um, there can be ways where talent, ability, powers, just cause utter devastation when not rooted in uh, sort of more human understandings. And on a more personal note for myself, and then we can get into Chronicle the film, uh, on a m- more personal note for myself, I am actively sort of assessing my uh, how freely I'm a reasonable, a reasonably minded adult, but how freely am I able to engage with the work of the Landis family without... Hmm you know, sort of, uh, uh, and, and being yeah. able to sort of shut off my brain, you know, with that regard. And again, this having said, I love American Werewolf in London. It was, it's, it's a fun film that I enjoy. You can go Sparked listen to our a great conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, so anyway, just, some no, questions. no, I, I love that. I said, I don't want to be here long and here we are 10 minutes later. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. But I do want to take us out of the awkward into the fun. And, you know, I don't have a thematic question for you today, Reed, but I do in the spirit of leftovers season two have a bit of a, you know, icebreaker style question. The the ice has long (laughs) since been broken between us, but, um, (laughs) you know, here, here we are. And as it references this film, at least and the content of it, 
it's that age old, you know, young boy putting a strapping a blanket around his neck kind of question is read what if you had superpowers, if you like this trio in this film stumbled upon mother brain under the earth and came away with abilities beyond mere (laughs) mortals, you know, surpassing human Ken, what would you most want to have ended up with now? These fellows end up with a bit of a cornucopia of capabilities. I'm I'm trying to narrow right. us into maybe just one. Sure. Um, do you have one at the ready? So whenever I don't know that I want this, but whenever <laughs> this question is asked, and here's the thing: is like you'll understand no, when I, I say what it, it is. Yeah, yeah. Whenever the question is asked, <laughs> the immediate thing that comes to my mind, which makes me feel like it is what my subconscious truly sure. wants, clearly, is You're to be able hardy. to. Oh, wow. (laughs) Is to be able to read minds, to be able to hear telepathy. Yes. uh, To be able to hear clearly what people Uh, are thinking. You Uh, might need to dig in on that a little bit. Right. Um, Because that, and and that's the thing is like, I don't don't even know. So read, just stretch out a little bit, you know, where. Talk, say say more. My dad never Where's took that? me to the surface. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now, no, but it's because I'm, you know, like it's because I feel like, and you will be able to push back. So I'm being sincere. I'm not being yeah. here from it. You'll be able to push back on this if you don't think this is accurate. I feel like I have a certain degree, perhaps greater than average degree, of empathetic capacity. I feel like I'm not like, you know, I, I just feel like I'm generally very, very empathetic as a human being. Um, and, and so what that can sometimes put me into problematic states of mind in bordering on neuroses, if not outright neuroses, is that if I can, can sense some, um, you know, shifts in tone, attitude, body language or whatever, it drives me absolutely nuts to not know what it means. And um, and so I think in many ways, though I certainly would not necessarily desire to hear all the inner thoughts of everybody that I might come in contact with, it would provide a definitive resolution mm. to this tension that I carry around a lot. And so that's why it would be my superpower. So it is just, this is interesting, Reed. We're, we're, we're making some breakthroughs here. Um, <laughs> it's very therapeutic craving on your part. Yeah. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, you need to crack the code. But see, my concern for you, you know, I appreciate that you cast this as sort of an empathetic thing. But really, Reed, what what has me, you know, I don't know, but I have been reading X-Men comics for the better part of three plus decades. Um, Sounds like perhaps akin to, you know, uh, um, a certain bald headmaster and his attempts over time at controlling things and, and the privy that he has to all of the thoughts of the world, turning him into some iteration of the creature onslaught or, you know, conversely um, the everyone's favorite original X woman, Jean gray uh, struggling with similar abilities till she was consuming planets as the dark Phoenix. My concern for you, Reed <laughs> is that you're craving for this ability, or at least even your nominal dabbling in it would would at least the way you've laid it out have some perhaps catastrophic outcomes. Probably would. Um, Probably would. Yeah, yeah. 
I love, yeah. I love that in this question, it's like the reverse of it, our it question about what scares you, which <laughs> right, right, you know, right, began right. a really lovely thread in the fear of God. Um, cause on that, you know, or actually maybe it is no, cause you did the pilot close, but you actually went really deep on, <laughs> you inadvertently went really deep on this one or maybe advertently. Whereas <laughs> me, I would have, I was just going to say, cause I did think about this a good bit. You know, today, did you? As naturally you would assume. Um, I think I landed on telekinesis for this. Mm. Um, because, because mm. here was, here was the sequence of thoughts. Um, flight. Okay. Well, I kind of ruled out flight because as maybe exhilarating as that could be, I don't know enough about aerodynamics <laughs> and physics. And I would probably accidentally kill myself like quickly. Like it sure, would be sure. really fast. You know, you would fly, get all exhilarated and a bird would just beak into your skull or something like, Oh my God, that was not, <laughs> that was not what I wanted to happen. Um, so I don't, I just don't know without a companion power of some version of invulnerability that flight mm. is really useful. I, okay. it would have its uses. It would just take a lot of work to get there. So sure. that's that. Um, I am a dyed in the wool nightcrawler fan. So oh, the notion sure. of teleportation holds appeal, but I don't know, Reed, if you know your X-Men lore enough to know at least the ceiling they put on nightcrawlers capabilities, more or less is the ability to see where he's teleporting. Yes. Less, he can't, he can't bamf yeah. if he doesn't know where well, he's, yeah. he can, he'll just end up inside a brick wall or something. Right. You know, mm. like, yeah, like he, he, his mutant power doesn't prohibit him from being able to do that. It's more about caution sure. for one's bodily self. So again, I'm not skilled in precision, you know, like I would end up splattered somehow mm. uh, with teleportation. So ultimately sure. telekinesis felt like that utilitarian maybe sure. slash if we're being real honest, just lazy power, right? Like <laughs> I don't want to get up. I don't want to yep. get up to get the thing bring right. it over i'm just gonna yeah. have it yeah, yeah, yeah. come yeah. to me and if you it, it might take a little while to to work this muscle such that you could let's not forget the the potential that tk as it's commonly called in you know in, in more professional circles in the circles yeah mm -hmm. right right um you could theoretically tk yourself at a certain point so flight is kind of mitigated by yeah yeah you're like mm. okay i'm gonna move myself i'm i'm, I'm you know is that flight? Yeah, who knows? But point being, TK felt like a really functional power to have. Sure. Um, and now I'm just disappointed in myself because I chose I chose pragmatism over passion. No, no, like no, no. Like it's, no, it's great. It's great. There was before we move on. This is not a joke. It's going to feel very much uh -oh. like a like a really silly sort of trite thing. There was a gentleman that I worked with back in the Virgin Megastore days uh, when I worked there that. This question, you know, we're not the first people to ask it. This question would come up and he had the most bizarre answer. And this was honest to God, his his answer. He said his superpower would be the ability to make anybody he wanted crap their pants. That was what he wanted to do. And and I was like, it sounded like they're just making a junior high joke, right? He's like, no, no, no. That would be really useful in a fight. Like, you think about this How many for fights a second. is this like, guy getting in? I'm not, I mean, I'm not like quite sure. But I'm just thinking like... And he literally, he would, he would like act this out where he was like, no, 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 the bad guy's coming. The bad, you know, like whoever it is, the big bad you're, is coming. You're in the fisticuffs. And then just all of a sudden you're just like, wow. And, the, and, 
<laughs> and the guy's like, you know, like it's just yeah. That was his answer, and and it is an answer that has stuck with me for a very very long time. I, yeah, I don't. I don't, that's, I don't know. Yeah, I would almost rather the juvenile <laughs> explanation for that choice because sure. that is just the funny. real world one you gave is like, what are you doing in your free time? You're like, if when you're in the fight, how many fights are you in? <laughs> Why are you getting in fights? What's wrong with you? That all of these fights keep happening to you that you're like, I wish this guy would just crap his pants. <laughs> that would be my ticket out of here. <laughs> Instead, I'm getting pummeled. This is my this is my flight. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that <laughs> note, <laughs> shall we? Let's do it. Fly Let's our way it. into the goings on of Andrew, Steve, and Matt, aka Harry Osborne, Killmonger, and that other guy. Um <laughs> Yeah, so Chronicle, uh, you explained your backstory here a little bit. Mine is, yes, I saw it way back when, not in the theater, um, and and had a liking for it. Um, and then re-watching it was just really kind of taken with it. I, I thought yeah. it was very yeah. well done. You can see why, post this film and because of this film, Trank was suddenly on a lot of radars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cuz there's it's a pretty deftly constructed and executed film. And I'm curious, maybe I don't mean to be jumping to the end of the conversation here, but I'm curious from you when you talk about maybe the weaknesses of the found footage thing, which is always going to be hard to perfectly execute. Right, right. I found Now I'd be again, I am curious where you're like, okay, this is where I really didn't like how they tried to fabricate it. In general, I was like, uh, it's pretty inventive, you know. Oh, absolutely. The the effects themselves, like with the with the occasional exception where you can kind of see the layered disconnect between like the the composite element of an animation of this individual over a green screen of some sure. sort. The effects are remarkably yeah. like vivid and they and they really look very you get lost in it you get right. a bit yeah. swept up and even though you actively know this is a fabrication and even though occasionally you can see the composite element of the fabrication it's still it's very arresting well and i think that's where the found footage conceit being a bit lo-fi in execution yes. and visual helps you know be able to pull off some things but what i'm Absolutely. genuinely curious about is not the effects is hmm. you made a comment a minute ago like it's sort of found footage but it breaks down a little bit like what are you also let oh. me let me before you even answer that uh, one reason that i actually found it inventive across the board more or less was i actually love at the end when the big showdown is happening and the yes. actual camera phones become your new found footage element i, I love that and the yeah, cctv so, and stuff exactly so so that yes but i feel like and i was paying attention to this this time around and i'd be hard pressed to like pull up a screen grab or sure. something but but this time around i did feel i knew that's what they were going for the cell phones all up and surrounding and and mm. that's what's supposed to be the image but some of the angles they got i'm just like this doesn't it, it begin to lose the feel in the sense of like well this no longer feels like a cell phone like because this was again remembering. Sure. This was in 2012. <laughs> so well, it's. I mean, it's that was like, five years after the iPhone. That's right. Five years after the iPhone, we didn't get to where we can get like this really beautiful, crisp image on an iPhone camera until like more recently, within the last like 
you know, two to three years. Um, whereas like some of the shots, both in their angles and in their crispness, just looked a little, now it suddenly felt like, okay, you're abandoning the illusion that we are capturing something in the real hmm. for the sake of a good angle. And I don't know, I'm, it's not a, it's not a hill I would die on in terms of like, you know, cause I know it's baked into the narrative that like, yes, that's supposedly the conceit sure, is that they're sure. up above and you're seeing cell phones uh, down on the ground below. You're seeing, you know, the news crews and, and, and things like that. So they did enough homework to substantiate it. It just felt like the, the first hour of it, I could yeah. tell very clearly yeah. where the camera was. Right. I could tell what it was doing. And it feels like at that end, they were just cuts and edits and bouncing all over the place to a degree that it kind of abandoned the general found footage sort of seamless feel for the sake of some, you know, more arresting visual images, which again is not a horrible thing. Cause I will say some of the stuff in that final yeah, showdown it's powerful. is really effective. Um, and I even, this I actually wrote down in my scares, but I'll mention it now that I was prepared for my previous viewing to go into this and be like, well, this ain't really a horror film. And then the last half hour comes and I'm like, this is a horror film. Like it's, and, and, and there were some of those images. Like I remember one specific one of, uh, Drew sort of emerging from the smoke thing. Like he's holding his father. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. And then there's another image later where he just sort of comes around the needle and just sort of Mm -hmm. pushes into frame. And it's real. It's it's. I'm gonna it make this comparison, but it's been forever since I've seen this, and even then, I'm not sure I saw it beginning to end. But it had a lot of Akira vibes. Have you ever seen Akira? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been years, but yeah, yes, the uh, yeah. out of control powers that are mm-hmm. plaguing the single character. It had that yeah, kind absolutely. of vibe by the end of no, it absolutely. to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's dive into some of the nuts and bolts, real specifically, dude. Yeah. Like. I don't actually, I don't actually know people who hate on him as an actor or as a performer. So it's not like I'm building this defense for a thing that needs to be defended. Michael B. Jordan is a born star. That dude has charisma to spare. I mean, you just watched this, which is eight years ago. Now Mm -hmm. he'd been in the industry for some time at that point, but not, not, you know, Black Panther level or Creed level sort of notoriety and performance uh elevation and and just watching this you're like it makes perfect sense why oh man people He's, love you and what i love about this i'll say this about his character and i would say this is probably true of most of the characters that michael b jordan chooses to play in his roles at least i haven't seen one yet with the possible exception of killmonger but even killmonger has like a lot of justifiable reasons why this isn't the case at least in the narrative but He's he's also just always plays like these kind of fundamentally decent people. Sure. Um, yeah, often not tr- longer. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> uh, but but he's like he always plays these people that are immediately sort of likable and charismatic and and uh, again, what I love about the character of Steve and then Michael B. Jordan playing him just amps that up to eleven automatically is that Steve is fundamentally a decent guy. Yes, he's running for like class president and stuff like that so there's a little bit of that sort of political gamesmanship going on but it never feels inauthentic sure even even in his interactions with them he genuinely and a lot of this is the veracity that jordan brings to the role but he genuinely seems concerned i love the shot when they're up on the building Mm -hmm. and 
Drew is talking mm. about his experience. Sitting of, on the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Drew's talking about his experience of loneliness and sort of the the, the difficulty of of navigating the world as who he is. And the look on Jordan's face, and he's super invested. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, that's really great as an actor, because you know as an actor he's just looking at the camera. Right. He's not engaged in the scene. Maybe somebody off to the side, but but you could see in the character of Steve that Steve genuinely cares for this individual, or at least genuinely cares that this individual is okay. And uh, and that 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 pinged for me this time around. Granted, the first time I saw this, um, I don't know that Michael B. Jordan would have been anywhere on my radar in terms of like big stardom sure. kind of stuff because he really hit my radar uh, with Fruitvale Station. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but yeah, it's it, it, he's he's outstanding in this, and you're right. But just born star, destined destined for that. He hit my radar with the wire. Have you seen the wire? Um, uh, not yet. Mm. It's, just, so, it's got Idris Elba. It's where he got started. It feels basically. like this conversation that feels some deja vu here. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what's happening. Um, so I've got a couple of brief trivial bits. I can okay. summarize them just in two. Uh, the first one is that uh, the director. Uh, made the three lead actors live together in a house for two weeks so that they could establish kind of a natural, normal bond. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The the second thing I have, I'll generalize. And so if you want to get more specific or if this hit your radar, you you can get more specific. Um, It was interesting to me to find out that this was originally intended to be a much darker and more brutal film. To the degree that they were even willing to go at one point for an NC-17, like really yeah. get sort of graphic and and heavy, um, and some of the which, some which of which has troubling resonance with what we just right? talked about a little while ago. It did not exactly. click with me until just now. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and uh, and like for instance, you know the 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 death scene of the father was supposed to be much more yeah, yeah I saw that. brutal. You know, so uh, but anyway, I just found that interesting because I think the film tonally strikes the almost exact right note mm-hmm. um and so it would it would strike me as bizarre if it uh if it in point of fact like had gone more brutal and more uh sort of you know volcanic um but anyway that, that was it i don't know if i stole all no, of the no, thunder on trivial sorry. Rates, but it's what you do, I do. um <laughs> let's see i think in general i just really loved the camaraderie I loved. Now, yes. you know, Hollywood is known for their dis- portrayals of extravagant parties for people who probably are, should be too young to attend them. So I'm not referring to that. But the the high school energy yes. felt very lived in and real. I agree. Um, yeah. Now, I'm sure the found footage component assists with that work a little mm-hmm. bit. But it's honestly... Mm-hmm. It's that coupled with the performances of the three of them and the engagement of the three of them. I'm thinking sure. specifically of or what's coming to me right now, but not in the notes, is specifically the sleepover they have after the flight, mm. I think, the first flight. And Matt, it's this really nice angle. And it's it's kind of a above ground angle, uh, not above ground, but bird's eye view angle of the room, the living room. Matt is on a couch. The other two are kind of, I think, on sleeping bags. And Matt, you don't even know. I, I, as the viewer in that moment, didn't even realize he was like awake. And he just says, "Like guys, this is the best day of my life." You know, mm-hmm. and 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 it feels very non-saccharine, very earnest and and real and sincere. I don't know. I just right, I really love right. the the dynamic 
of the three of them, which, you know, to your, you, you said it well just a second ago, the thread is very well, or I'm sorry, the needle is very well threaded. Yeah. Sure. Go with whatever sort of analogy yeah. works mm-hmm. for you there of the whole tone, because that early earned camaraderie gets just utterly devastated by the end. And, and, right. and the emotionality of the, the trio is what drives the last arc of the film, you know? It and is. So that's, yes. that's really great. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's one element because, you know, we're talking about Michael B. Jordan and I was frustrated in the first, I'm still a bit frustrated by this. Like, why is Michael B. Jordan got to die in every movie? Like every movie, but Creed, like he dies uh, in Fruitvale Station. Just Mercy? He, well, he doesn't die in Just Mercy. That's true. Cause Brian Stevens is still alive, but like he doesn't die or he dies in Fruitvale Station. He dies in Black Panther. He dies in this. I even my, so my wife is also a big fan of his and, uh, there's a running gag about in our household about like, why is he got to die in every single film? So then when the adaptation of Fahrenheit 451 came out and, uh, he stars in it with, right. uh, you know, Michael Shannon, not yeah. Sheen, Michael Shannon. And, um, and he, so, and then I was like, well, don't worry because, you know, the, his character in the book is like the hero and survives and, and he, die, he dies in that. Really? Yeah, that's funny. And I'm like, oh my, uh, yeah, and I'm like, oh my god. So anyway, anyway well, Reed, it's because we can't have. It's like, it's he's too amazing. Like yeah. the world is not kind. Too good for this world. <laughs> but uh, but the 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 point that I was making though is that the first time through that bothered me. That uh-huh. death bothered me. This time through, to your point earlier about the way that dynamic sort of propels the next mm-hmm. thing. It's like the tension between the three because I had forgotten. The scene where Drew is at his grave and like weeping because mm-hmm. he realizes now too late what he has done and how that how that really adds a strong degree of pathos into the finale where he and the cousin are kind of facing right. off with each other. And and it is the you know said earlier that it's a tragedy. It is the dissolving of that camaraderie that really, I think, fuels the emotionality of it. So it, 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 it frustrating as it is to see Michael B. Jordan go out, it, I, I understood, I feel like this time, this time I think I got it in terms of why that was a necessary exit. Um, anyway. Um, well, I think in general, the casting of this is great. I mean, it, it really you know, is. Michael yeah, B. Jordan, of course, strong. is is the charismatic of the bunch, but even, I literally just had his, the actor's name in front of me and now I've, Lost it, but the gentleman who plays Matt, although this came out in 2012, mm-hmm. it, it makes me happy to think that his last name is named for a Friday Night Lights connection because his name is Matt Garrity <laughs> yeah. and Michael B. Jordan, Friday Night Lights, and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the casting of all three of them is great. You know, yes. they clearly have just a wonderful charm and dynamic to what's going on. And I mean, once it starts turning, it's hard. Like it's yeah, it really is. You know, you've it, it it sort of begins. At least the act the actions begin with the car, the truck. You know, him him running the truck off the road. Yes, but I mean, gosh, the whole sequence with the firefighter uh, mm. outfit, like all of that, is really rough. No, it's like it it's, really is. It, I, I had this weird experience of watching it being like, this is kind of cool, but oh man, this sucks. You know, it's like just visually yeah. and sort of conceptually. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to throw, you know, no, do it, whatever, dumb, dumb or senseless shade on it, but um, 
Cena, this is a film uh, that has some resonance to why I probably need to revisit Brightburn because I really thought in this, I was like, well, no, this is a Brightburn plot that I can kind of get behind where it's like <laughs> the, the way that everything is playing out. But uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Cause I'm like, listeners well, this, don't this know right. what you're the, the rail you're touching right now. Cause oh, we haven't really talked about it. I don't think we've talked about it on the show. I, I watched remember. Brightburn and found it a, a popcorn horror movie that I got some nominal enjoyment out of and that Reed just has uh, decided to hate at every turn on. I actively hate on at every it. turn um, for, <laughs> for really inexplicable reasons, but that's okay. Wow. Okay. Um, sure. Sure. It's sure. your telepathy or something. Speed. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 now, speaking of movie comps that, you know, don't even really need to be revisited, but I wrote this down. Now I'm going to feel like a real jerk because of my joke at the top 10 earlier. Um, uh, uh. I said, can I, this is at the end, the final conflict. I said, can I say it? This accomplished what man of steel utterly failed at, <laughs> which is carnage, carnage through a city in a fight between supers that actually feels consequential. Yeah, um, that's true. And, no, that's and true. you know, the, the Matt character isn't a Superman level character. And so, Though the the analogy breaks down at a certain point, thus when Matt has to kill uh, Drew, Drew, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to make that comparison to Man of Steel because no, it's earned in this one. That's what I'll say. It's well, earned another, in this one. It well, it is substantially earned. No, I think the I think it's appropriate because like one of the elements of this that is not present, uh, if if only in like lip service in Man of Steel. But there's a tremendous amount of pathos for Drew. Like sure. they have built yeah. up like like it is not just mad with power run amok. And I think that was one thing that really stood out to me this time that I either just missed the first time through or was just I've lived enough life now to go through the wavelength and, and, and recognize and understand it a little bit more. Um, but that I really connected with is I'm like, oh, this is this is a a a put upon and just constantly beaten down individual a lonely individual a wounded and hurting individual who has just been clothed in immense power and mm -hmm. he is as much uh just just desperate to be heard and seen and simultaneously oddly enough left alone and just mm -hmm. be allowed to be and he's so desperate for all of those things that matt's eventual killing of him is not merely I've got to do this for the protection of other yes. people. It is it's, also to a degree a mercy. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that he is taking that he is relieving him sure. of this of this burden. Um and that is entrenched in the fact that the final scene is a coda, a tribute to mm -hmm. what Drew wanted. That he right, wanted to right. reach that place of of peace. Because it's it wasn't lost on me. We're edging up on theme now, so I don't want to steal any thunder. But no. um like it, it wasn't lost on me that in an earlier scene in the diner, you know, where they do the whole fork bit mm -hmm, where, mm -hmm. you know, but they're talking and he was, you know, he's talking about how, 
um, you know, he really wanted to visit these places and experience a sense of peace. And um, I think it was either in a deleted scene or maybe there was a version of it in the film. But somewhere uh, in it, I had heard something about like the character was originally going to say that he was really investigating altruism and just the concept of making the world better for mm-hmm. other people. And that's baked into so much of what that character is going through. What's really disastrous and really does like hurt my heart this time around in a way that is arresting and and has has me gaining respect for the film is that previously when Steve was taken out, I took it as like, oh, you're just going to remove this this character like a like a just like a cheap shot. But I'm I'm seeing in this moment like the tragedy or saw when I watched it this time around the tragedy of the fact that Drew desperately needs a friend like Steve in his life. A grounding, yeah. Yeah, somebody who can be like, are you okay, man? Like, look at what's going on with you. Look at your face. Like, are you okay? And he he unfortunately just completely ran aground of Drew's unbridled uh, emotionality. Right. But, um, but, but it does. It feels more weighty in this, in, in this time around. And I think that's what grounds it is one of, possibly my favorite shot in the film is that scene when the dad comes in to the hospital room Mm -hmm. and at first and it's such a it's a strong pivot because the dad who has been outwardly abusive to um, Drew this entire film uh, seen in very uncomfortable ways then um, he comes and he sits down on the bedside and he begins to weep. He begins to cry. And I, as a viewer, not remembering the the specifics of the scene, right. I, as a viewer, is like, oh, I forgot that they, like, established some connection, affection yeah. and, and a connection from the father. And then right. it pivots and the father is only crying because while he was out trying to find Drew, their mom, uh, Drew's mom, passed away. And so his dad is like sitting there. Drew is bandaged up because he's been like from an earlier scene. He's been burned in on most of his skin. He's bandaged up, and the father starts lashing out at him and railing at him, blaming him for the death, of the mother. blaming yeah. him for the death of the mother. And in what might be my favorite shot of the film, finally after this maybe thirty to forty-five seconds of just berating. Andrew grabs grabs the arm, and it is almost immediately followed by that scene where just like the room just like explodes. an explosion. Yeah. It's great, and oh, it's a, it's a really really powerful. But again, all of this to say, the film does a really impressive job of shoring up the pathos that uh, has to exist for that final decision to be earned. Um, and well, and, talk and, uh, to me yeah, a little bit because. Go ahead and blow out the room with whatever okay, dramatic okay. stuff you're following. Yeah, so so the moment that really sort of latched on to my mind that I'll extend out a bit is the scene, and it's a pivotal scene. It's set up as a pivotal scene where he's got the camera in front of him, and he's sitting in the junkyard, and he's waxing poetic about this apex predator right. and the fact that, like, oh, you know, an apex predator um, that I'm, like, you know, I'm above – all the rest and we wouldn't think twice about swatting a fly and we wouldn't right. think twice about killing a bug and stuff like that because you just you just don't think about it you know which chillingly enough is true and in the context of this moment of the scene i just really found it arresting and then i'll blow it out into the 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 you know the thematic notion that's scratching at at my mind is he says i think that means something 
And so he's experiencing a superiority. He's experiencing the feeling that, hey, I am genuinely stronger and more capable of doing all of these things. And because of that, these people are all beneath me. Mm-hmm. And because they are all beneath me, I am justified in whatever sure. I inflict upon them. Right. Because I am, and he even says it again under his breath in the big climactic fight scene with Matt. He says, you know, I'm an apex predator. I'm an apex predator. And then he tries to literally like throw a bus mm-hmm. <laughs> at Matt in the air. But what that got me to thinking about, and I was not ignorant of like the Max Landis connection and, and then my my recent conflict in like my feelings about the work of John Landis, and et cetera. But one of the things in that, I referenced this earlier, and this is, may be the last time I reference, you know, that earlier subject of the Landis family, is uh, in that episode of Cursed Films and talking about, like, the Twilight Zone tragedy. Um, and I won't go into a ton of specifics about that because it's pretty gruesome. And if you're curious, you should just seek that out and watch it because it's a powerfully made documentary and, and it, it's it's very emotional. Um, but part of the logic behind the decisions that ultimately led to this onset accident, this tragic onset accident, um, was this whole idea of like, well, these other things are temporary, but film is forever. Like, Jeez. and so, and so what it, what it kind of gets entrenched in my mind, particularly in the context of watching Chronicle is that logic. And it just, some of it, I'm not even going to be able to fully define and unpack in a cohesive way. But that moment where he's sitting there and he says, you know, you don't think twice about swatting a fly. You don't think twice about killing a bug. And he says, I think that means something. And then he holds up his hand for the camera crushes and the truck. crushes the truck behind him. And I think as we're examining, and you and I are different, unique individuals, both to each other and, and you know, we are of our own mind to the world around us. So I'm not going to speak systemically about people groups or anything, but I think there's a way in which the way power gets abused, a way. Not the way. A way power gets abused might begin by convincing yourself that you deserve and that the the inferiority of those subject to you or the inferiority because of your unique. and, And again, I said this earlier when I was scratching at it, you're not only your unique position, but perhaps your unique talent or your unique appearance or your unique skill or ability positions you in a in a sense to say like well i'm i'm better than than you i'm better than you at this and the moment that you begin to because he's come up recently i think just a couple of weeks ago but i also recently (laughs) because of a friend asking me if i could borrow one of his book if they could borrow one of his books of mine um, uh, uh, Henry Nowen, I've been sort mm-hmm. of resurging in, in a lot of his work and, and, um, he, he, he did a lot in his later life to talk about the time that he spent working with disabled people in, 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 in a disabled community. And, and he talked about the way that that repositioned his mind to recognize the value in people who could offer nothing 
right. to the table and could offer nothing to the conversation. But it it humbled him to this way of just recognizing the care for these individuals. And that is what is on my mind as I'm thinking about this, is that some of us maybe are gifted with certain unique positions, perspectives, talents, whatever it is, and we will either exhibit those in the care for other people or the oppression of other mm-hmm. people. And I know oppression is now becoming like a very often used and fraught word, but I mean it very deliberately. Like we will either make things better for people or we will make things harder for people. And I think one of the things that makes Drew's character so tragic to me is he has always, in the context of this story, he has always been a victim. Mm-hmm. A victim of the ousting of his high school community, a victim of the abuse of his father, a, a victim, 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 victim. And now suddenly has been gifted through this coincidental discovery, has been gifted the ability to be a predator, right. to be a, a figure of power mm-hmm. and 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 to to make people fear him. And that's why you referenced it earlier. He puts on that firefighter suit and just like marches in mm-hmm. to those people. And they and I think intentionally, the film isn't too explicit about this, but intentionally makes sure that they know who he is before he unleashes havoc on Mm -hmm. them. Um, And so that's that's what's on my mind is this is is capturing in my own heart and mind, as is frequently a recurring thought, the ways in which I myself and the people around me can begin to position ourselves as superior to others in certain regards or even as a whole, and that that is, I think, an avenue through which power can be abused and uh, through which systemic abuse becomes a reality. And uh, there's probably several different threads that we could go, but I've just, I've just, we've grenade in the backpack, (laughs) missile through the roof, dud grenade on a a school bus, and now Mm -hmm. I've got hospital room exploding. (laughs) So that's what I've, that's what I've done. I don't know what that sparks in you, if anything. Um, I'll try to respond with what's coming to me with no promise that it will be super coherent or tie as much as I want it to, but it is what's pinging for me while you're talking. And if it goes nowhere, it goes nowhere. And we, we land the plane before it flies into our friends, um, or it goes somewhere. Um, because as you're sort of painting this picture, what's difficult about a story like this that always becomes where the rubber meets the road for, for walking out a faith is like, as we watch this story and the, the, a good thing about this film is the found footage again, lends a veracity or credibility, a lived in nature to it. So it, you almost can't distance yourself in the way you can from a traditional type of film. You're like, okay, you know, what do we do? if anything, with the Druze of the world, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the Dylan Roofs of the world. The right, right. Pick someone who clearly has been either and both put upon at every turn and indoctrinated into their own, into a, a new status of power, right? I right, mean, right. You know, Drew gains superhuman abilities. Uh, 
I didn't mean to suddenly make a conversation point about Dylan Roof, but troubled child carrying out heinous wrongdoing. And that's what popped in my head. Um, And, and so, so yeah, the, the question becomes, what do you do with this? And, and how do you, you know, on a, on a practical level, you and I, Dylan Roof, nothing. We, 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 we have no involvement. In right. That. We just right. read the news stories and see the tragedy and sort of make some choices about how we want to think about it and maybe make some practical energy in our life. But like practically speaking towards this person, but, but there are people, maybe not right now when we're in quarantine, basically, but there are people that we have in our orbit at some level who are troubled and right. And, and I, I feel like I brought this up on the show before, maybe just in conversation with you. I remember a, a, a PSA that released around school shootings and it's all these little lovely vignettes of high school kids doing high school kid things. And what you don't realize that is that in the background of each of these vignettes is a, the troubled kid and the PSA right. ends with a school shooting. And it's like, look who you're not seeing kind of thing. And Initially, I was really resistant to that. Like, I'm like, come on, you know, this, this is hyper manipulative and, you know, and yet it's hard to not feel the responsibility as brethren for the put upon of the world. And I guess I'm just trying to figure out, like, not figure out, like solve it, but explore, uh, in our typical Mm -hmm. paradigm, Mm -hmm. you know, I sent you a text the other day of a screenshot of people talking about high profile celebrity level folk who were being investigated for things and more on the ground folk, i.e. people that would be in our orbit saying, you know, can't wait till they burn. Oh, yeah, right, right. And these are just normal people saying these things. And, and my sort of plight to you is like what 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 like how right how how have we allowed ourselves what what misfigured and still dead jesus are we speaking of when we permit ourselves those those vocalizations right right and I don't know what to do with this. I'm, I'm telling you as my friend and that I'm in conversation with in this moment about this thing. So yeah, guess what? Nathan read a Richard war book. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called, what do we do with evil? I really did not mean yeah. it as part of the conversation with Chronicle, but it's, it's pinging rather loudly. And I am being reductive in my assessment as I tried to figure out, okay, what, what is he trying to say by the end of this? It's a pretty short book. Um, pretty interesting. Um, you know, and two words that popped out to me in this summary final elements of of the book, those two words were include and forgive. Mm. And I think it scares the hell out of us to have to reckon with evil rot is, is part of the tapestry. Mm. which doesn't mean we celebrate it. It doesn't mean we lift it up. It doesn't mean we exonerate it. It doesn't mean we turn the other way. Right. It right. Do- and I'm talking through this as I'm saying it. So, you know, this is not some prepared monologue. It just feels like it means 
it's part of it. It's part of the stew. And it's really interesting because I'm trying to figure out for myself, I just finished this book last night. So all of these thoughts are super fresh, but if include and forgive, like think about drew in this film, like we have to, we have to, we have to, it is. If Christ is real, the, uh, the highest call he has for us is forgiveness. Mm. We have to, we have to be able to look squarely at heinous wrongdoing, not brush aside, not wash our hands of, but find forgiveness for acts because it's still a beloved person in there, mm. you know? And, and, and I, I just, I don't know. I don't totally know what I'm saying other than just, I'm wrestling through like this portrayal of this character that you're not allowed. I mean, the text of the film invites you to empathize. It does. And yes. so, and that, and for that, it's good. Like that's, a, that's a good, yes. In terms of just film criticism, th that's a solid notch in the belt there, you know, but as we take the film versions and apply them to the real world and trying to suss out, I don't know. I don't know exactly where I'm landing other than just saying include and forgive yeah. are really powerful statements mm -hmm. sent words to me as it, as it, as an if and how, and in figuring out ways to acknowledge and yet properly place quote unquote evil in the world. Well, because look at the, I mean, and, I don't know how the book frames it, yeah. but look at look at the uh, the antonyms of those, uh, which would be you know exclude and uh, and and deliver a verdict, condemn, indict, you know, ex yeah. indict, and yeah, yet and that is what we do. That's yes, and and that is our. I posted this. I'm glad you said antonym. It's been a while since I've heard that word. Uh, I posted this. A long time ago, I can't remember in what context, but I remember I, I said something on social media, and if I'm remembering the quote correctly, I said, you know, part of what I've learned about the navigation of faith is that some people are always finding the work of the Lord, and some people are always finding the work of the devil, and some people are always finding ways to keep others out, and some people are always finding ways to let others in, and I feel like that is really a big element of the the push and pull that we have and i mean for forgiveness is forgiveness is 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 painful it's it's um it takes a tremendous amount of work and i think a lot of times you said something to me off pod and it was about a particular mental and emotional skill set um and the the specific quality is not important but what you said about it is you said it's it's a learned characteristic this film chronicle they are given talents and abilities and it's a throwaway comment but they said it's a muscle right and yeah and we develop it we strengthen it we hone it if you work it too hard you tear it if you work it too hard, too fast. you tear yeah. it. Too hard, too fast, and you tear it. And I feel, I know in my 
you know, emotional, philosophical, theological construct, forgiveness would be in this category. Maybe the capacity to include is also in mm. this category yeah. Yeah. of it is a muscle you have to exercise appropriately. And I can see why you swing wide the gates too broad, too fast. And I'm not talking about political or social constructs. Sure. I'm talking about individual people. You swing wide the gates too broad, too fast. You're going to get hurt. Right. You're going you're, you're gonna to rip something. You're going to tear something. Something's going to break. Um, and and I, I, I have gone back. I, I think I've cited this quote from C.S. Lewis uh, before about forgiveness because I think it's pithy and, and clever and quite true. He says, if we want to learn how to forgive, we need to start with someone other than the Nazis mm. because- it's too big. It's too big. It's too big. We can't do it. We can't wrestle our heads around it. We can't, we can't do it. And, um, and to that degree, it is something you and I have spoken about. It's, it, it is, it's those little choices. It's the small choices in the context of small days that are, as Eugene Peterson termed, a long obedience in the same direction, perpetually, mm -hmm. you know, training your mind, your heart, your muscle. I will let in i will include i will forgive. forgive i will forgive and and it is it is a choice it is something that we decide taking the pain upon ourselves and and yes listeners of course there are conversations about accountability there are conversations about justice this is not in exclusion right, of sure. this is in inclusion of and a part of it going all the way back we referenced uh, we referenced Sinister uh, going all the way back, like one of the early episodes, I think possibly even like the second episode we had, talking about the necessity of mercy for justice and the necessity of including forgiveness into the conversation about how justice is 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 moved forward and acted out. And um, these are complex subjects, big and broad, but... Uh, that's what resonated in my spirit so profoundly when you, when you talked about that is it's, 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 it's practice. It's daily, it's daily conditioning and practice. And right now in the, I'll just mention this and yeah. just, it's, it's just a hit and run. Thanks to the tumultuous political climate, thanks to the dynamics of social media and everything, we are not working this out. We are, mm -mm. we are instead cutting this off and saying, well, we're fed up and we're done and we're not going to, we're not going to reconcile and we're not going to engage. And so we're all just sort of drifting apart. We're not exercising the muscle. We are, we are polarizing into our tribes and it just being, okay, well, these, these are the people the, that, uh, that I let in and I don't let in different schools of thought. I don't let in. You know, people who think differently or people who have done heinous things or people who have done awful things. And in part of this whole wrestling is I want to be a man who is constantly finding a way to let somebody in. And I want to be a man who's constantly finding a way to find forgiveness and to display forgiveness. Anyway, that's that's it. I apologize. for. Well, and to your point about not excluding justice, accountability, that sort of thing, you know, his name's already been invoked once, but Stevenson often, Brian Stevenson often talks about truth and reconciliation. He's like, you can't have reconciliation about the truth first. And, yes. and our yes. capacity, our, 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 our difficulty in doing that keeps us from that reconciliation. Right. But what's been sort of rattling around in my spirit for a couple of years, but specifically uh, as it relates to this conversation, that word forgiveness 
include and forgive, include and forgive keeps coming up. And, uh, I'll, I'll name drop another piece of pop culture here. One of the reasons I get moved beyond words by the song. It's quiet uptown from Hamilton is, is they, you kind of have to know the story for the full weight, but, um, a, a broken relationship, finding its way back together again, the, the word pulls out in, or, or is, is called out by the chorus forgiveness. And then the lyric that immediately follow immediately follows it is, can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. And man, I think so much about our on writing conversation and a holy imagination and how, you know, yeah. you look back at, um, you're next and, and the echoes of theme that were there of pragmatism, like pragmatism gets you nowhere. You have to imagine in order for forgiveness to be possible. Like, like mm. there's something, um, that transcends just the moment that has yes. to be sought after. It has to be called upon. It has to be shored up. It has to be flexed. Like these things are not just, you know you you rip it too hard and it tears yeah man there's there's this thing i'm tempted to uh, conversation point i'm tempted to walk down but i just don't know that it's worth it because i can't figure out exactly anyway uh uh include and forgive include and forgive and i will say even in this moment um there are there are so many things this is i i will say this about the conversation because i think it's time for us to wind down this is a I think for myself, the reason I want this conversation to go on for another two hours, it won't, listeners, don't worry. You'll uh-uh. see the timestamp. <laughs> it won't. Co-host. <laughs> timestamp. It's because this is this is where I want to sit. This we start talking about this. This is where I want my head to be. This is this is what I want. You know, like when the scriptures compel us. That whatsoever is good and, mm-hmm. and lovely and when it compels us to think on these things, it's because when I, I think part of it is because when we do, there is a there's an awakening in our spirit of like, yes, that that is it. That the clamoring for power and the clamoring for control and the clamoring to be the apex predator on the Facebook thread or the apex predator in the uh, uh, office setting or the apex predator, this, this consumptive sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was talking with a, you know, a, a coworker of mine today. And, uh, you know, I was talking about how, you know, when I'm wrong, when I get something wrong, it dings my ego. And we were joking, but I really want it to be true. I said, I need my ego dinged as much as humanly possible. Yes. Um, because that I'm not saying you do, I'm saying generally speaking, yes. (laughs) Right. Right. Because I, you know, because I need to be reminded, um, of the growth ahead of me and I need to be reminded of, you know, uh, include, forgive, um, because that is, I mean, but Reed, that's that, it. That that can be as applied to self as it can be to others committing heinous crime. Yes. Like it is yes. my ego has been dinged. It causes shame spiral. Okay. I need to be able to incorporate, include, and f- self forgive to be able yes. to kind of, I, I am not perfect. I am not capable of all things. And, and yes. 
uh, going to execute successfully in every iteration of life. Like that's stupid to ponder, but we still do it because that's the ego. Right. And when yes. that gets dented and exactly. dinged and suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, my hackles are up and I'm feeling the shame. It's like, okay, well, include that. Yes. <laughs> and now forgive yes. that and forgive yourself and move forward. Yeah. And somehow and- in the holy imagining, we learn to blow that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, you just, it's it, it it's a it's a beautiful sentiment, and it's something that we absolutely, I think, have to continue to pursue. And what we've been scratching at before, it's a it's a practice, it's a muscle that you exercise, it's a choice you make. You don't wake up one morning and 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 just stumble into it. Uh, you it it is an active practice that you get better at every day and maybe have slip ups because mm-hmm. new traumas come into play and new things uh, come into play the it's quiet uptown song you will uh, work through the unimaginable mm. you you <laughs> will it's beautiful you will you will face things that and that's it the the, the unimaginable like you, you you will work through things that you do not visualize and envision a future it's it's part of the nature of depression that you cannot visualize a future you cannot see something past this moment past this present condition there is no beyond now and that is part of the holy imagination is recognizing there is there is a beyond now there is a beyond here and um i think that's part of i think that's part and parcel of what we yeah we just we i i want to sit there i want to be a man who sits there and exhibits that and (laughs) i'm gonna invoke the true statement about it like i i've said more than once when I'm asked like how I'm doing or how I am, I was asked the question earlier in a very sort of strange and sudden context. Am I happy? Am I a happy person? And it was a very difficult question for me to answer. And I had to say back to it. I said, I think in general, I'm, I'm quite happy, but I am always a little sad and always a little angry. And I think part of that, as I'm wrestling through like this conversation, Hulk. like the Hulk, <laughs> um, part of it is as I'm wrestling this down is, uh, I have to include that. Mm-hmm. I have to. I have mm-hmm. to forgive that. I can't excise that. Mm-hmm. Henry Nowen, in one of the books that I read, is talking about mourning and dancing, and he's. And I promise, listeners and ho- co-host, I'm trying to wind down, but he talks about in mourning and dancing. He said, you know, we are um, too ashamed to cry, and uh, we're too shy to dance, and so we do not experience true mourning. And we do not experience true joy because we are so inhibited and restricted in ourself. And, wow. and you have to include that. You have right. to include and forgive that, that, that it is real and that it is true. It exists and it plays itself out and you have to, it's part of it and you cannot pretend otherwise. You cannot pretend it's not part of it. Um, yeah. Speaking of morning, Reed, <laughs> we're going to get back to it next week. We are getting back to it next like, week. I feel that was great. I feel like this was kind of a like a precursor. This was like yeah, a prelude, yeah. unexpected wow. prelude of it. 2012. Um, no kidding. Um, so, uh, you ready to go to the Fog Meter? Sure. Yeah. You want to tell the listeners what it's all about? Uh, fog Meter is our very own homebrewed metric of how we rank every film we discuss and occasionally the TV shows. Um, by our podcast's namesake, the metrics are fear and god how scary was something and how substantive was the same something um on a fear level um i think this is a very effective uh, you know 
you you made you you attempted a distinction earlier about horror or not you know someone might say oh that's not a horror movie but in terms of just the tropes of dread and threat and a bit of viscera thrown in for good measure it it definitely qualifies um, absolutely and is just really effective at what it does so i i'm gonna be pretty generous here and probably go with um i'm gonna go with a seven on the fear factor before you even said that, I was thinking of giving this a seven. Some of those shots they're great. Um are just yeah, they're just fantastic. And just like the imagery, holy cow, the 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 scene but the the plane coming out of <laughs> nowhere. Rough. Like that's I mean, that's galvanizing. The images of the, you know, the truck like just jamming off the road. And then like I said, that half hour, that last half hour yeah, is just almost minute after minute of very alarming visualizations and, mm-hmm. and definitely quite harrowing. So yeah, seven, seven for me on that substance is going to be the God meter is going to be a little hard for me to judge here because I'm still trying to discern how much of it was there and how yeah. much of it was just something I glommed onto. Um, I think I am actually going to land at a seven for that too, because I, the, the, the experience elevated so highly from my previous experience to of mm-hmm. watching this film to now, um, I do feel like it was it was text of the film that sort of brought me there. I feel like they do substantiate the pathos of Drew's character. They do substantiate this whole apex predator conversation in the in the narrative baked into the narrative of the film. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a seven. Well, I think also to your point, they also substantiate how if they had stayed together, they probably the trio probably could have grounded him more. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, like, yes, absolutely. Which again, that's not me saying the other two are responsible for Drew's actions per se, but you know, just saying the movie does have a lot on its mind. Um, in the spirit of camaraderie and <laughs> brotherhood, I'll go with a seven. What if, what probably if, what are we gonna have? Reed? What's the average? <laughs> I think you probably know. Uh, you can probably go ahead and give the fog meter on uh, a, on on this one without it's doing it. It's a nine point five. <laughs> <laughs> we a give the uh, we give Chronicle, directed by Josh Trank, and uh, starring several actors who are still on the scene, um, a seven on the fog meter. Um, but Riri, after uh, uh, viewing number two. How would would you would you recommend people watch Chronicle? Uh, I definitely would. Now, um, I uh, prior again after the first viewing, I would have probably been like, "Meh, it's okay." But this viewing, you know, it really impressed me. And yes, I would I would recommend Chronicle. We talked about how it could be, you know, their original intention was to be more brutal with it. As it stands, it's 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 not it's mm-hmm. not you know very difficult to digest. Uh, so yeah, I would I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, same here. I think uh, even like last week, we I gave a particular qualifier to your next. There really isn't anything in this that's uh, overly objectionable or, you know, despite the heavy nature of the tone, even that mm-hmm. grisly or graphic, um, it is just heavy in tone. Um, but is also just, I mean, I texted you in the middle of it, like this holds up. Like it's, it's, yeah, it does entertaining yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, and a good watch uh beyond just the academics of talking about horrors so yeah yeah i, I definitely recommend we it as well hmm. and we haven't commented on it it's brief it's like an yeah. hour 20 20 something part. minutes <laughs> yeah but it's very very brief film easily digestible and and unlike uh, really this recording solid. which is going to supersede the uh runtime of the film 
That is uh, that is true. It will take you longer to hear us talk about it than it will to actually <laughs> watch they know the that, film. They include so. and forgive us for that <laughs> ongoing thing. It is true. They do. Um, well, that puts this installment of um, hashtag 2020-2020 for 2012 in the books. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, next week we are going into the next, the final, the ultimate phase of In the Morning. And we are going to be talking about where we're going to be beginning our journey in The Leftovers Season 3. Uh, do you want me to quickly give like just the whole syllabus or should I just uh, i just do say one for, for now for yeah, the sake next, of my okay. bedtime. <laughs> exactly exactly so next week um i believe it is available on amazon prime as of this recording um check out a film called anna and the apocalypse it is a christmas film but when you see it you will understand why we're covering it here um it's basically a christmas zombie musical anna and the apocalypse that's fun and we are also going to be discussing episodes one and two of the leftovers season three so um, check those out, and then we will begin with this next phase of In the Morning next week. So, Nathan, thank you so much yes. for this conversation, as always. Really, really appreciate it. And as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.